You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 124. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be meeting Eileen Ornsby, who is a dark webs expert and author of true crime books. Eileen's also a lawyer, an author, and freelance journalist based in Melbourne, Australia. Her first book, Silk Road, was the world's first in-depth expose of the black markets that operate on the dark web. She's now a leading dark web expert sought after by television programs like 48 Hours. Her Gonzo-style investigations have led her deep into the secretive corners of the dark web where drugs, weapon dealers, hackers, hitmen, and worse, ply their trade. Little Lost Girl is her latest true crime book, and it's out now, so we're going to talk to her about that and her uh, work. I'm a big fan of true crime, and I have been uh, wanting to have a true crime author on the podcast for a while, so I was excited that Eileen agreed to be my first true crime nonfiction author here on the show. So we'll uh, be talking to her here in a second, so uh, stay tuned for that. A quick reminder, please visit thrillerauthors.com. You can access the show notes there for this episode and have access to my archive of over 120 author interviews. And please do visit thrillingreads.com forward slash rate to rate and review this podcast. Please note, due to the graphic nature of true crime, listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, this is Alan with Meet the Thriller Author. And on the podcast for today, I have uh, Eileen uh, Ornsby, who is a dark webs expert and author of true crime books, Little Girls Lost is the latest in her dark webs true crime books. And I'm a big fan of true crime, and uh, so I've been wanting to have a true crime author on the podcast. So I'm really excited to have Eileen here. You're all the way from Australia. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Ellen? I'm doing uh, very well. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, very excited to be here. Yeah, and I guess uh, yeah, the first uh, the, the first uh, I guess nonfiction that I had an uh, author that I've had on. <laughs> oh, okay. So how did you, on it. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get into writing uh, true crime? Can you tell us your uh, your story? Uh sure. Well, it really started back in 2012 when I was uh, a freelance journalist, and I started writing about the dark web, and I wrote about the Silk Road online marketplace, and that was the first of the, the large point and click marketplaces on the dark web where you could buy and sell any drug imaginable and I'd sort of looked into it it was still in its early days then and I'd spoken to the owner and some of the people that used it and wrote about it for a newspaper here in in um, Melbourne and my editor immediately asked me to write some more stories about the dark web because at that time nobody had heard about it and so from then on I pretty much started spending a little bit of every day inside the dark web talking to all the people populated the place, finding out why they were there, what they were doing, uh, having a look at, at what it, what was going on there, and kept on writing it for my editor. And then, of course, the next thing happened uh, as I decided to pitch a book and I got a book, book deal, my first book deal, which was uh, Silk Road. And from then on, it's uh, just carried on. It's, it's been my thing to be the dark web expert, I guess. Yeah, Silk Road, I remember that uh, the... The founder of that uh, was it Ross Albright, I think. Ross Albright. Yeah, he was arrested like a few miles from where I live in the library there. So I remember. Those oh, of course, he would have been in the in the library, the science fiction section <laughs> of the Glen Park Library, I think it was. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's about the two three miles from where I live. So now, whenever I drive by that library, I, I think about that, and <laughs> so so interesting. <laughs> yeah. So um, so I haven't been in, into the dark web. 
So can you tell us about it? And is it as seedy and creepy as it's made out to be in the in the media? I mean, would a useful tour of it? Oh <laughs> uh, yes and no. So the dark web is just the name that we give to the group of websites that you can't find using Google or any of your normal uh, search engines. Uh, in fact, you can't find it unless you download special software in order to actually get into it. And you know that you're looking at a, looking for a dark web website when instead of at the end of the URL of the web address, instead of got .com or .org or .net or any of the normal signifiers that you, you know of, it says .onion. And what will happen if you put that, that URL with the .onion at the end into your normal web browser, into Chrome or Safari or Firefox, it will just come back, page not found, this does not exist. But when you download the special software, which is um, a darknet called Tor, once you plug that into the browser that opens up there, you will, in fact, be able to open that website. And what they are is, is uh, the Tor provides these layers of encryption, which mean that both the website owner, the host, and the visitor to the website are completely hidden from each other. Neither can find out who the other is. Connection with the U.S. Navy. Um, in order to protect military secrets. And the whole idea was that uh, it would be you know, unbreakable encryption so that especially agents in uh, hostile regimes could talk to each other, operatives in hostile regimes could talk to each other without their communications being intercepted. But those same technologies provide a perfect place for crime to happen as well because obviously criminals also don't want to be detected. And it was, I mean, it went fairly under the radar until Silk Road came along. So Silk Road started in 2011, and the idea was that it was a complete open marketplace where willing sellers and willing buyers could come together, meet each other in this uh, marketplace, and buy from each other. And the idea was that it was to sell drugs, and it was to operate on the same sort of platform as any other e-commerce platform. So it looks like eBay or Amazon when you go in there. And what happens is you browse the drugs that you're interested in, you pop them into a basket, you pay with Bitcoin, but it's, instead of paying the seller, you're actually paying the site, and the site holds the, the Bitcoin in escrow until you uh, release it. So you, you say, yes, I've received the drugs, they're what they were supposed to be, they're the right amount, and so you can now release the, the money to the seller, and then the site keeps a small percentage of that for doing that. So it operated just like any other online buying and selling place operates, except instead of you know self buying and selling books or CDs or, or DVDs or whatever, you're actually buying and selling drugs. And it was any drug imaginable. And it became huge. It became um, you know a, a multi-million dollar, a billion dollar industry. And it's still going, even though Silk Road was shut down. So that ran for about two and a half years until, as you say, it was uh, the founder, Ross Ulbricht, was discovered and it was shut down. But since then, the sites that have popped up have been bigger than that one ever was. And so there's still a lot of uh, commerce going on, a lot of drug buying going on on the dark web uh, today. And, in fact, it's growing all the time, according to the Global Drugs Survey. And that's not the only thing you can find on the dark web. There, there are other things, um, but it is mostly used for buying and selling drugs, um, buying and selling hacking tools. And so it, it is a place for hackers to go and meet each other, um, to sell the, the dumps of the databases that they hack and that sort of thing. And then it, the, the really seedy place that you've heard of, of course, is it is also the perfect place for 
uh, child predator communities to get together and to share their materials, so their videos and photos. Yeah, that was uh, that that part was really disturbing when I was doing my research for this. Uh, <laughs> some uh, well, we always know there's always been a, a sick, twisted people out there, but uh, there was. It's kind of shocking. I was reading that one, uh, I think it was Matthew, he's Australian, I think. Uh, I can't remember his name, but he was uh, basically uh, creating for all these uh, child abuse. It's just crazy. Yeah, Matthew Graham created yes. a site called Hurt to the Core, which is, so you've got, I mean, you've got a lot of uh, pedophile networks on the dark web, but even most pedophiles said, no, this site is the worst site that's ever existed. We don't want anything to do with it. And the law enforcement um, also said this was the worst site in history because it wasn't, um, and I shouldn't say just or merely child pornography, because nothing merely about it, but this was the worst of the worst. This was actual torture, child torture. Uh, and so, yeah, that existed in the dark web. It has been shut down, but that little subset of pedophilia called Hurtcore still exists to some extent on the dark web. And I also saw that you had a, um, your story was so fascinating with that, uh, I believe it was the, the Visa Mafia website that was in the dark web, which I guess was supposedly where you could hire a hitman, but it was kind of a con. <laughs> That's a fascinating story. Yeah, well, uh, uh, there's always been hitman sites on the on the dark web. They've always advertised their wares and said, oh, you know, it's a perfect place for a hitman. And the idea was that, um, you know, you could, you could hire someone on, you didn't have to know who they were, they didn't have to know who you were. All you had to do was pay them Bitcoin, give them a photo of the person that you want to kill, and it would all happen. You'd never have to meet each other. Um, and it sounded great in theory, but, of course, once you've handed over your Bitcoin to someone who you don't know, once it's gone, it's gone. You can't you can't get it back. And so they have absolutely no incentive whatsoever to carry out the murder. So this guy was running this site and he actually he ran a very slick site. It had, um, you know, really good graphics and it was a good interface. It was very professional. And he actually had hundreds of thousands of dollars come in in Bitcoin of people that were trying to order hits, except he was just scamming every one of them. He was like a Nigerian scammer. So he every time they'd... Um, you know, they'd ask, oh, what, when's my hit being carried out? He'd say, oh, there's something went wrong, the hitman needs a bit more money or this and that, and he'd keep on fleecing them for more and more money until they finally realised it was a scam and gave up. And um, uh, so I was writing about it and saying, oh, you know, this, this site, all hitman sites are scams and this one included, and if you give them money, you're going to lose it. And he started writing to me and saying, look, stop stop writing about my site. Um, you know, you're... you're First of all, he was trying to tell me he was a real hitman side. He was going to send his uh, hitmen after me and if I didn't stop writing about it. But then he eventually started saying, look, please stop writing about my site because what I'm doing is a good thing. I am scamming would-be murderers out of their money and all you're doing is hurting my business. Please stop doing it. And then he even offered me a job to help him rewrite his site uh, because it's, you know, English was his second language and we sort of got to know each other in a little way. Um, but, you know, the, the thing was, is even though he was scamming people, there were very real people ordering very real murders. So those people were quite dangerous. And in, I think it was 2016, um, a friendly provided access to a, a cybersecurity expert in, in London called uh, Chris Montero, access to uh, the Visa Mafia site. I'd managed to crack their crazy password, which was fucked. <laughs> that was his actual <laughs> password, um, and uh, got into the, all the emails. 
Yes. And we were able to, and he, he contacted me and said, here, have a look at this. And we were able to actually see every single email that had come and gone, every piece of Bitcoin that had been transferred into the account, all the hits that had been carried out. And with that, knowing that there were real people that had, had hits taken out on them, even though they weren't in danger from this site, had to start telling um, law enforcement. And you'd think that would be fairly easy, wouldn't you? But mm. no, law enforcement, when they start having this late, you know, journalist from Australia and this uh, somewhat eccentric cybersecurity guy from London trying to ring up and say, dark web, hit men, people were having hit, they, they were like, no, you guys are crazy, just leave us alone. <laughs> and we really couldn't get them to take it seriously until one of the people on that list that had had a hit taken out against them ended up with a bullet in her head. And her name was Amy Allwine in Minnesota there. And then they really started taking it seriously because her name, her details were in this list of things that we had handed over to the FBI. And to their credit, they had actually gone and, and seen her and said, hey, your name's on this dark website. Do you know anyone that might have paid $13,000 to carry out a hit on you? And she was like, no, I've got no idea. And they were like, oh, well, you know, keep an eye out. Be safe. And then she wound up dead. Of course, um, they scrambled after that to... Uh, have a look at everybody on this list uh, and her husband was caught for that one and uh, is now in prison but uh yeah they, That's crazy. until then they were really not taking it seriously at all wow so did you, did you, did you know if they any other of these people that took out the these hits were they were there any arrests at all or from the there other were one? loads more arrests oh that's good to hear <laughs> <laughs> yeah no after that there, there were uh, many more arrests we also worked with um cbs over there for their 48 hours program and during that i was still talking to the owner of visa mafia europe he said oh look i'll, I'll come on to the show because he actually thought it was a chance to advertise his hitman site and he provided them personally with with two of the um, new names and addresses and, and photos of people that had hits taken out on them and they turned out to be real as well and um uh, two people got arrested over those so you know he was he was actually supplying 48 hours with some of the uh information about these people but then when they uh, released it and said oh this, this site's a scam he got all upset and wouldn't Wow, that's just uh, incredible! And so now you're you're writing uh, your books now from uh, based on some on some of these cases that you've been investigated. And uh, is your latest book is that Little Girls Lost? Is that the the latest one? That's the latest one, but that's not actually dark web related. So I do write regular true crime as well. Oh, okay, um, so it's a bit confusing because I uh, my own imprint is the dark web's true crime, uh-huh. um, but it is about all sorts of different crimes. So. I've got three books specifically on the dark web, which are Silk Road, The Darkest Web, and Murder on the Dark Web. Um, and then I've got three books that are on general sort of uh, crimes, though most of, the, most of the crimes that I write about do have some sort of internet aspect to them. And so now were you like, before you started writing these books and everything, were you a fan of true crime or did that come later? Because you, you were like, your background is very different, right? You were like an attorney, I believe. <laughs> yeah, well, I was a corporate lawyer, um, so... <laughs> That, that really had nothing to do with true crime whatsoever, except oh, unless you say, you know, at the um, I was working for the, the banks and the bad guys, I guess, at, when the global financial crisis <laughs> hit in 2008, and that sort of gave me an existential crisis and that I don't want to do this anymore. Um, you know, people are losing their homes and, and I'm helping protect the, you know, the people with all the money. And so that's when I quit to become a, a writer. Um, 
that's when I began journalism and writing books. So first of all, I wrote a chiclet comedy novel, which never went anywhere, <laughs> never got picked up by a publisher, but my first true crime book got picked up by a publisher and sort of rolled on from there. And I, and I found out also that you, uh, you're you one of the writers for the Case File podcast, which is a podcast that I've listened to before. It's very interesting cases on there. Um, is what's Yeah, that? I'm a freelance writer for them. So <laughs> I've written about a dark and that's basically what uh, the books that are under my own imprint, the Dark Web's True Crime series, are all extended versions of those scripts that I wrote for Case File. Oh, that's fascinating. So what's the, how do you even, I guess I never really realized with the whole, but the podcast scripting, I guess, uh, how, is it a big difference from writing a script for a podcast that someone's going to read compared to a book? What's, what's that process like for you? It is a little bit. I mean, I write them as if they're going to be a book almost, or as if they're going to be an article, but then I tweak it so that it is uh, more suitable for being read out, but then it also goes to an editor at Case File who will edit it um, for the final uh, reading out by the host. So it, it's similar, and that's why there, there is a bit of difference between the, the books and the, the Case File episodes is because they are more edited for the speech, but um, the research and everything like that is exactly the same. And so then, and what the, what, I always like to ask my guests about the tools that they use. So what do you use to write these uh, scripts in your books? Is it uh, Word or use of a software like Scrivener? Or? I'm a Scrivener fan. I couldn't live without Scrivener. Um, and I'm more than happy to give them a, a free uh, free shout out because it is amazing, um, amazing software, very, very, very affordable. And uh, I'm not on their payroll. I just absolutely <laughs> love it. Yeah, no, I'm a big. Uh, I I use Scrivener as well too, and yeah, I I I love that software, and I like that it's not a subscription based. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was like a one-time payment that's more yeah. than pay for itself. So now you 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 come across with so much disturbing stuff, and uh, when you're doing your you when you're writing, uh, does that ever get to you at all, or is or how do how do you deal with that? Uh, well, most of the time I stay away from the really disturbing stuff, so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I don't have a problem with going into the drugs markets and talking to the drug dealers and all that sort of thing. I am against the, I'll get a bit political here, but I'm against the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, drugs should be uh, legalised, regulated. They should be a health problem, not a law and order problem. And so the whole idea of the, the drugs markets online, in, in some ways they're providing a safer place for people who are going to buy drugs anyway to buy their drugs. They don't have to come face-to-face -face with, um, you know, most people that buy the drugs are not criminals in any other way other than the fact that they're buying drugs. And so this way they don't have to come face-to-face -face with any drug dealers or anything like that. It's all, you know, there's no violence involved. It's all done for the safety of their own homes. So, and there's also, there's all the, the feedback and um, quality control online as well. So like any other uh, sellers, online sellers, they live and die by their feedback. So they're always searching for that five out of five feedback. And that means that they provide higher quality stuff. And it's also, there's other people on there that are independently testing different vendors' uh, gear and all that sort of thing. So that uh, overall, you know, no, obviously doing drugs is never safe, but this way is safer than buying off the street in general. Um, so... In that, and and they, they tend to be very reasonable, nice people that I speak to in that way. Uh, the only time I got really disturbed was when I was writing The Darkest Web, 
which is the second book, um, I did write about the Hurt Corp um, sites and, and those sorts of things. And I didn't, I never went and viewed any videos or photos because I knew that once you can, once you see that, you can't unsee it. Not to mention that it's very illegal. But uh, you know, I did not want to see any of that stuff. But I did go into the forums, the discussion forums, where they get together and they talk about where they can find those things. They talk about um, actually abusing children and, and different methods um, for keeping them quiet and for making them not remember and all those sorts of things. So that was very disturbing. And then I also went to some of the, the trials, um, including uh, Matthew Graham, who you mentioned earlier, who owned Hurt to the Core, and that was just two days of really, really disturbing stuff being read out because they were they were reading out sort of scene by scene of these videos that he'd had hosted and uh, exactly what was in the photos and discussions between him and the, and the carrying out the torture and that sort of thing. So that was, um, yeah, like I, I really went home in tears every yeah. night of that, that thing. It was just horrific. Um, but that's sort of, you try, I'll put that behind me and try not to, to think about that so much anymore. Yeah, yeah. I read one of those articles on his trial, and and it had some. This is just on a regular website, just covering the trial, and it's just a couple uh, instances in there. I, I was I couldn't believe it when I was reading. So yeah, I can't even imagine. You know, but good thing that the that uh, they, they got him at least one of them at least for now. <laughs> well, that's right, and I mean, there's still fallout from that now. When they, because I mean, he he was not a contact offender. He there was no evidence that he'd ever actually touched any children. He went and this site for other people, but now they're um, uh, they have been able to sort of get into some of the videos and photos and, and start uh, finding people from those. I mean, there's no you know there's no crack cyber team working on this. It's old fashioned detective work where they look at the videos and the photos. They sort of find a, a freckle on someone's finger or some sort of evidence that they can figure out where in the world it might be and who the child might be, and then they find the perpetrators that way. But I don't envy the, the police that have to go through all those materials in order to find those people. Yeah, yeah. I watched that. Uh, there was a, a, a sh- I think it was uh, the 60 Minutes, Australian 60 Minutes on the guy in the Philippines that was doing that. And yeah, the way they, Scully, they, yeah. Yeah, that was what a what a vile human. But anyway, that's... Oh, he's, uh, he's probably the worst of the worst, really. Oh, I mean, there's some bad people out there. He's at the top of the list. Yeah, but it, yeah, but it was from a from a crime uh, perspective, for police procedural, like you said, it's just unbelievable. These guys and women, these these police and law enforcement people are really doing it old school. Like, yeah, they go undercover. They talk to these people, try to get them to give up any information. Um, you know, to get them to trust them. So yeah, I can't imagine what that does to your, your psyche. Yeah, yeah, because that's the thing with that uh, true the dark web, right? That you were saying before is that it really is untraceable than like like the regular web is. Well, it's uh, it's un- it's untraceable if you do everything. But there is no human being that does everything right. Ah, got um, it. In fact, in the hackers, you'll always find there's a saying amongst the hackers that it's way easier to hack a person than it is to hack a computer. Mm-hmm. And the way most of them get their really big breaks is literally by social engineering, by pretend, by um, talking someone into giving up their password, you know, pretending to be someone important that they have to give their password to or whatever. Um, and that's what most hacking is all about, rather than lots of tapping on a computer and then I'm in, you know, like you see on CSI or something yeah. like that. Uh, and what's uh, so? What is your writing process like then? I'm so curious because uh, coming from a fiction, the fiction world, 
how, how what's your writing process for nonfiction? I mean, do you like have these outlines? Uh, can you walk us through that process? Yeah, well, I've, I've got this master list of um, you know crimes I'd be interested in writing about. So nowadays, mostly, um, you know, uh, my my thing is I'm writing. I write a case file episode, a few case file episodes, and put them together in a book. So I have this master list of of, of cases I'd like to cover, and I'm constantly adding to that. So anytime I see something interesting on Reddit or uh, on, on Twitter or anywhere like that, a case that sounds like it could be interesting, I put it in the master file. And then I'll choose which one's going to go next and see how much meat it's got in it. Then I basically, from there, I create a script and a file. I read everything I possibly can about it. I watch everything I possibly can about it. Uh, depending on whether it's appropriate or not, I'll, I'll interview people and I'll, you know, I'll actually visit, uh, go to trials or, or visit people and so on. That's not always appropriate for different reasons. Um, and then once I've got every bit of research I possibly can have, I think of my narrative structure. So I, I try to write them. So if you, if you listen to the case files, you'll, they're um, not like ordinary podcasts in a way because they are literally like a short um, spoken, uh, like a short audio book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have a narrative structure the same as uh, any, any fiction. Obviously, everything has to be true and real in it, but I try to give it that same sort of narrative structure, three act structure. So I have to figure out, you know, put it in chapters and figure out how that it's going to sound interesting and I'm going to make people's interest because they are quite lengthy. Yeah, so I enjoy about that one too, that, uh, I mean, I enjoy the other serial, you know, like the, the the scripted one with all the interviews, you know, spliced in and everything, but those get a little bit too much. I, I, it is kind of nice just to listen to someone just tell you what the case <laughs> without so much production. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that that's why it's popular is because it is pretty much a free audio book for, for people listening. Yeah. Because each, each one goes for an hour and a half, two hours. So it's like listening to a short audio book. And so has the, uh, with everything that's been going on this year, the craziness with the pandemic, has that uh, changed the way you you do your work or has it affected you at all? Uh, not really. It's been, I haven't been able to travel to, to uh, interview people or see places as much anymore. Um, one of my favourite things that I own is an Oculus Oculus Go VR headset. Oh yeah, <laughs> and um, so that that way I can actually visit uh, certain locations in the in the VR and walk around them because you know, they have uh, Google Maps in full VR in there. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I, I do that instead of, of going out. But as far as personally, I've always worked from home and I'm a bit of an introvert anyway, so it hasn't affected me too badly. Okay, so what are you working on now? Uh, what's uh, next for you? Uh, I've got another uh, case file podcast to come out. I am I have started putting together a um, sort of a, a complete encyclopedia of the dark web, which once I've got a bit of that underway, I'll start pitching that to uh, I'll give it to my agent to pitch to publishers. Uh, but I haven't got as far as, as getting that pitch in yet. Um, so yeah, and I've, I've got another indie published book to come out, you know, the case file compilations coming out uh, fairly soon. So it's all those sorts of things working together. I try to put as much time into each one as I can. And the best place for uh, listeners to find you would be on your website. You have a lot of great uh, info on the, on your website. Mostly I'm on Twitter at, at Eileen Ormsby and anything that I do can sort of be linked there. I've got a blog at allthingsvice.com um, or if you just Google my name, you'll come up with all my books. Yeah, your blog, your blog cracked me up because your 
contact info when I was trying to find how to contact you to be uh, ask you to be on the podcast. It was like basically like regular email, and then for like all the paranoid, it was like <laughs> yeah, I've I've got um I've got an encrypted email and a regular email. That's that. And then people send me like encrypted messages to the encrypted email. Sometimes it's very secret squirrel. Oh, that's crazy. So that's kind of funny. But um, and so before I let you go, I always like to ask my um, guests for advice because we a lot of the listeners are also aspiring writers. Uh, any advice for like an aspiring true crime writer out there? Oh, well, I guess the, the, the main thing about being a true crime writer is you have to be accurate because mm-hmm. um, people will jump all over you if you get anything wrong. So research, research, research is the, the main thing for that. Um, and then, yeah, try to... If, you, if you're writing it for a book or um, you know, uh, try to give it that same narrative structure as you would for your fiction without compromising your accuracy, that's the big challenge. Okay. All right, Eileen. Well, thank you so much uh, for uh, coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you about, uh, about your work. Thanks very much for having me, Ellen. It was really great. Thanks for listening to the Meet the Thriller Author podcast. Be sure to visit thrillerauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover great thrilling reads. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, uh, rate, and give a review uh, to it, wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, podcast, be it uh, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, uh, wherever it is that you're uh, listening to this right now, I would appreciate it. And uh, please do check out my own thriller novels over at my website at alanpeterson.com. Until next time.